Let me pray for us. Well, God, what a great power in the resurrection of our Lord Christ. Just the power that it had, not only in its moment and in the magnitude there, but in glory, in eternity, but also what it means for us one day. Uh, Yes, it meant salvation for us now and justification for us now, but, oh Lord, we long for the day when we'll be raised again, glorious in all glories with you. We thank you so much for the truth and the reality of the resurrection for us. We just pray that as we come to your word this morning, that you would speak to us and that our hearts would uh, tune in praise towards you for all that you have done and will do for us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter 1, and there's this incredible verse in this chapter that shows us Really the magnitude of what the resurrection has accomplished for us. Not just uh, on our moment of salvation and not just a one day in the future. But what has the resurrection done for us? Was it just we're glad that he was resurrected because Paul says we should be pitied if he wasn't? Is it just that? Or is there something greater? Here in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm just going to read uh, the section here, but we're going to look mainly at verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation already to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's incredible word. There in verse 3, it speaks of this resurrection as the foundation for all of the rest of those blessings. All the rest of the glories, all the rest of that beauty is founded upon here in verse 3, this resurrection. It says, blessed be the God and Father of of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's an incredible picture here. Um, the God and Father. So often when we read in the scriptures, we read the term God, it's most times speaking of the Father. And we just automatically think of God, you think of Father, most times. But here it, it clarifies because there is a, a relationship here between the Son, who is our Lord. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because 
according to his great mercy. The mercy of the Father towards you, the, the, the one who seems to be the judge over our sin, the one who is merciful towards us. It says, according to his great mercy. Mercy, him stooping down to an unworthy person. And it's great. It is great in its power. It's great in its scope. That no matter what we have done or what we are like or where we are from or what we might do with our lives, his power and his mercy is great to stoop even there. His mercy comes to the lowest of the low, to the most undeserving. Now, a hundred years ago, in Saudi Arabia, did you know that you know when ISIS was in the news, that Islamic State terrorist group, they did horrific things, right? Did you know that some of the ISIS terrorists have come to faith in Christ? God's mercy stooped even that low. To, to the most grotesque among our human race, God's mercy can stoop there. And, and for us, we, we might look at a, at a terrorist and say, how awful of a person. But yet... Jesus himself says to us, like, if you have hatred, if you're angry and you have hatred in your heart towards someone else, you're like a murderer at heart. Don't judge other people based on their outward sin, because you got inward sin just as grievous. We have the same ability to, to, if we are not restrained in our sin nature, to get there. And so we celebrate all of God's grace and all of his mercy on terrorists and on us. Terrible people. His mercy is great. The Father's mercy. And it's according to this great mercy and according to nothing else. It's not according to a works that someone was able to do. It's not according to a, a religious system they ascribe to and, and fulfill. It's not according to a person who has done their work to clean themselves up. It is according to and only to his great mercy. Have mercy on me. Sinner, have mercy. I need you to come, even though I'm undeserving, is what mercy is. And it's only according to his great mercy that look at this next part. He has caused us to be born again. Born again. That's not just a term that was phrased by Christians that tried to try to figure out the difference between uh, how do we say we're different than Catholics or how do we just say we're born again Christians? Did we just make up that term? We didn't make it up. Jesus made it up. He told it to Nicodemus, didn't he? That he needed to be born again. Well, why do we need to be born again? Why do we need a, a newness, a complete reset, a restart in our lives and our hearts? We're the ones who needed great mercy and we were, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, the greatest description of really uh, who we were and what God did. He is the one who caused us to be born again. It's according to his mercy, not us going, all right, I've sorted everything out. And I think I'm acceptable to him. And I think this is good enough to bring as a sacrifice. My life, Jesus, here it is. Is this acceptable? The answer is always no. We are plagued with sin to the deepest part of us. And we are, we are dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says this. It, it goes like this. And we were dead, spiritually dead, unresponsive, unable to do anything lovely or good or useful to God. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
We were in it. We lived it. We breathed it. We had our being in our trespasses and sins. That's who we were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, mastered by it, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. That's what made us up. Among them, we all, we all once walked. No exception. We all walked in the sons of disobedience. As the sons of disobedience. The sons and daughters of Satan, the enemy. We formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest of mankind. And then verse 4 of Ephesians 2 says, But God, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, love, he caused us to be born again. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive. He caused us, according to 1 Peter, he caused us to be born again. Ephesians says he made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with Jesus. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves. You didn't cause it. He caused it. It is the gift of God received. But it's not a result of works so that no one may boast. We may not say that we caused ourselves to be born again. We can't boast in that. We were dead. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we might walk in them. God, but God being rich in mercy, he made us alive. Though we were spiritually dead, though our hearts were hard as a rock, unresponsive to him, he caused us to be born again. He was the cause. There was no other cause. Other than him acting and moving on us and in our hearts because we were dead. What good can a dead thing do? Nothing. So God, being rich in his mercy, came to those who were dead, unable to do anything, and, and breathed life afresh into us. And caused us then to be born again. He caused us to be born again. John chapter 3 is where the account of Jesus telling Nicodemus he needs to be born again is. John chapter 3, the most famous chapter in the Bible with John 3.16 in it. It's no mistake that the chapter began with Jesus telling Nicodemus this. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then that chapter goes on to talk about those who believe would have everlasting life. We must be born again, Jesus says. So don't marvel at that fact that that you cannot enter the kingdom of God as you are. Even as a cleaned up version of you, you can't. You must be reborn completely. You must be new. You must be born of the Spirit, a whole new person. It's incredible. Jesus says that's a requirement. You will not enter the kingdom of God without being reborn. But according to God's great mercy, he caused us to be born again. It's not like we're, we're, we're hopeless. Like he tells Nicodemus, you must be born again, and then that's it. I hope you can figure out how to be born again. Nicodemus is already trying to figure that out, and he's going to have to go have some awkward conversations with his mom and say, Jesus told me, and I still don't get it. Can you work this out? It's not... Like, Humanly speaking, it's, it's impossible for us to even fathom the concept and, and let alone, spiritually speaking, to, to enact it. How do we cause ourselves to be born again? We can't. And so we come to God and say, I realize that I cannot enter the kingdom because of who I am and all the, the, the sin that's plagued me, all the things that, that I have Uh, done against you and so i must be born again i must be made fresh i must be made new and and i don't deserve that i'm unworthy of that and i don't know where to go but to the foot of the cross on your face not proud saying look what i've done but humbled humbled at the foot of the cross begging for god's mercy stoop to me if you will i don't deserve you to i'm so unworthy for you to get even near to me but yet, Christ, Christ did. He, he stooped. He came. And, and he became one of us, lived as one of us, and then died as one of us. Instead, he died as you. If you have placed your faith in him and your trust in him, he died in your place. He stood. So that we may beg him for mercy. And he says, it's yours. It's yours. I love you. The motivation in Ephesians chapter 2 said, God, because of he loved us is why he did what he did. He's caused us to be born again. Look here again at our verse. What is it to? We know it's to a new life. But here he says it's to a living hope. A living hope. Not just a hope that was momentary, in that moment where you came to faith in Christ and you said, I confess I need Jesus and nothing else, and that I am a sinner, but you are a savior. There's a hope for a moment, and then tomorrow what? No, 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 the hope lives. The hope lives beyond that moment. The hope uh, lives for all of eternity. It is a hope that is not fading over time. It's a hope that is stirring us or compelling us to do something. Charles Spurgeon gives a really good example of this. He says, he calls it a lively hope. 
It says it's a lively hope in another sense. Namely, it cheers and enlivens. It's like the swimmer who is ready to sink. But if he sees a boat nearing him, he plucks up the courage and he swims with all of his strength because he now expects that his swimming will be effectual service to him. The Christian, amid the waves and the billows of adversity, retains this hope, a glorious hope of a future bliss. And therefore, he strikes out like the man towards his heavenly shore. Our hope buoys up the soul. It keeps the head above the water. It inspires confidence and sustains courage. Our hope is, not, is, is informed like the swimmer who had hope because there was a reality in front. There was now truth to be held. It wasn't a shot in the dark. A swimmer who says, all of a sudden I got courage and I'm going to swim that way because I hope there's a boat over there. No, it's informed. It's, it's knowledgeable. It's factual. That's the same with our hope. We have a hope eternal. So we press on and, and we live in it. It, 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 it encourages us and strengthens us and, and makes us alive every single day in that hope. That's what we do. It's a glorious hope of a future bliss. You think of all the things that people hope in in this life. Things that we hope in sometimes too. You hope the bank doesn't shut down and forget who you are. You hope your retirement savings don't disappear because someone pressed the wrong button. You hope that the health system's there for you when you need it. You hope that things work out. All these hopes that people long for. Oh, I, I hope the treatment works. Is that, that's all you're hoping in? What if the treatment doesn't work? Your hope's dashed. I hope this job pans out. I hope my relationship can be restored. I hope. Well, those things often let us down. That's not true hope. When the Bible speaks of hope, it's not a fond desire of something that may or may not come. It is a confident assurance based on something true. That's hope. A confident assurance based on something true. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The God who promised is faithful, and we have seen that again and again and again. That's, what, that's why we ought to read the Bible every year, or else we will waver in our hope. We'll think, I'm not sure if he's going to be faithful to me tomorrow. There's no question about it when you read the scriptures, even to the failures he is faithful. Even to those who let God down, he is faithful. Even to those when the whole situation seems hopeless before them, he is faithful. So that's why we ought to intake as much Bible as we can so that we may have an unwavering hope no matter what hits us. No matter what comes. We have hope, confident assurance based on something true. Because the God who said it is faithful. The God who did it, who caused us to be born again, is faithful. That's why our hope lives. Because he has never once let us down. And he, is, he never will let you down. And so you have a, a living hope. A hope that is not just alive until you see him, but a hope that causes you to live, truly live. You're not having to go through life just hoping for the next day and hoping for the next best thing and hoping everything works out. 
You go through life with a confidence that no matter what comes and no matter if this thing fails me and that thing fails me, I have a hope much greater and, and further beyond all of the things before me. If my health fails and my money's gone and everything else is gone out of my life, my hope is not shaken in eternity. My hope is, is confident and is unwavering because God who promised it is faithful. He, it says in Philippians, he who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. Do you believe it? Do you believe when God says that, that he'll fulfill his promise? If you have a hard time believing that, you need to read the scriptures more. When I am wavering in my hope, what I ought to do is go and see a time where he has been faithful. Or I look at my own journal and see where, where I despaired, where I thought things were hopeless, likely because of a circumstance. And I was just blinded by that. We are so human, aren't we? We just see about three inches in front of our face and think, this is all there is. God has left me. David was like that. You read the Psalms, right? David's so like that. Like he can only see about the end of his nose. God, you've left me. You've abandoned me. And then minutes later, oh, praise you, God. You are, you are there and you are with me and you are my hope and my strength. Right? It's incredible uh, the examples that we have in Scripture and in our own lives to remember that God has never once left me. He's never once um, abandoned me, and he never will. He is faithful. It's incredible, though, because the foundation of this living hope, it says here in our verse, is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, there, we wouldn't have this confidence. This living hope because of us being born again, this living hope is only through the resurrection of Christ. Had he just died on the cross and been buried in the tomb, and that was it, there would be no hope of this living hope. There would be no hope. But instead, like all the phrases in this passage are incredible. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. A reminder, he was indeed dead. Dead. And, and we know why he was dead. It's because of our sin. But yet, he did not stay dead. He defeated death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? Well, it's not there. The tomb's empty. He's alive. He's alive. Jesus himself says in, in John chapter 11, 25 to 27, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He's saying this to, to Mary and Martha when they're grieving Lazarus, their brother who had died. And she says, she, it's incredible because just prior to this, she expresses her understanding in her face. She says, Lord, I know that we will one day all be raised in the resurrection at the end. So she knew well what was coming. But Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. Do you believe this? Was Jesus' question to her. 
Do you believe this as Jesus questioned us? Do you believe that I am the resurrection? Do you believe not only that I am the resurrection, but I was resurrected? And that in me and in this resurrection, this, this hope is where the hope of life and living comes from. Though, though you may die in, in this earth and in, with your body, you will live forever. Live forever. Not just perpetually be dying in torment and separation and agony, but instead you were living in hope and in joy and in peace. This is where the Apostle Paul makes it abundantly clear in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, where he says, And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is useless. Because your sins are still on you. Because he was clearly a liar. Clearly had no idea. And clearly death won. So your sins are still on you. But indeed, Christ has risen. And it's through this resurrection we are born again to a living hope. By his great mercy. And that's why we celebrate. And the beautiful thing is, this truth of this being born again to a living hope through the resurrection of our Lord because of his great mercy, it beckons us to respond. To respond in faith and say, yes, Lord, I believe. And help my unbelief if I am disbelieving or, or help me where I lack hope. But it also beckons us to give him praise and adoration. The verse begins this way. Blessed be the Lord Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be... How quickly can we skip over that when we read the scriptures? How quickly, even in reading this, you just go, okay, get, get to the meat of it. That's, that's it all. This is for his praise and adoration and our transformation. This is a life of praise. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't it so? That blessing and honor and glory belong to him. And, and it sh shall be so in our hearts as well. So here Peter calls us. He calls upon his heart. Your heart. My heart. That blessing may be present. Blessed be. Be it, be it there. Beckon it. Call it. Awaken it from our hearts. Because if you know the truth in the remaining verse that you are born again to a living hope through this resurrection, all because of God's mercy, if you know that is true, then blessings will flow. Blessings of praise, not, not necessarily like what we think is blessed, I'm blessed, but blessing of praise. If you experience this, you will sing, blessed be his name. In Psalm 103, it says this, beginning of verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Charles Spurgeon, in, in writing on this verse in the Psalms, he says, The psalmist sings the best note 
I'll paraphrase Spurgeon. When he begins stirring his inmost being to magnify the Lord. He exhorts himself. He, he corrects himself. He tells himself. Because as, as though he was tending towards dullness. It would so overwhelm him as it does with all of us. He says he is worthy to be praised. In the highest style of adoration which is intended by the term bless. Each one of us should arouse his own heart to engage in this delightful service. Let others bless or praise themselves. Let others praise their idols. But you bless the Lord. Let others use only their tongues. But as for me, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Not just your tongue, not just your mouth, not just the words, but all that is within me. Bless his holy name. That's what flows out of truly believing this verse. Truly believing that you are born again to a living hope because of his mercy. Blessings and praise and adoration flow not just from a mouth, but from a heart overwhelmed. That is our response to the resurrection of Jesus. Some days we do it, other days we don't. That's where we beckon it. We call it, arouse your heart to praise him for his resurrection. Arouse your heart to, to praise him for his great mercy that caused you to be born again when you were unable and dead in your trespasses and sins. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Let's pray. Oh God, you are so rightly deserving of all blessing and honor and glory, and, and yet we so often are so caught up in so many things, and we forget the living hope. We forget how you brought us out of darkness into light. We forget how you made us alive spiritually. Or we just kind of coast. God, we don't want to do that. We don't want to forget your faithfulness. We want our hope to make us alive. Alive in this moment, and not just because of the anticipation we have, but alive now because of who you are to us. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you what it meant for us and our salvation and the washing away of our sins, but also what it means for us one day that we will rise again to be with you. We thank you so much for the grace that you show to us and pray that all of our beings, every bit of us, from our mouth to our heart to our head to our hands, that we would bless your holy name as you deserve it. We pray in that name. Amen.